This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, the food we buy may not come as advertised. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor at Dalhousie University, tells us how companies are getting away with food fraud. We also dig into the drastic impact of price fixing at grocery stores and what it's having as an impact on our lives, our wallets, and more. On a very special episode of The World of Weird Things with Greg Fish, we find out if we are in the middle of a very boring dystopia every day. And are you okay with cursive? How about the Wheel of Fortune? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Last week here on The Shift, we chatted with you about fake foods, and it's kind of like fake news. It's fake foods. It's not really fake foods, but it's not what it is that we think it might be. There's always been this question about organics. What is organic? For a long time, it was basically a high price with food that still had dirt on it. That's really what it looked like. (laughs) Or manure. (laughs) Right, or it smelled like manure, right? This is so true. And so I wanted to dig into this. Sylvain Charlebois is here, and um, he's the food professor. You got to check out his podcast. It's amazing. And um, the reality is, Sylvain, is that you are starting to see in your data more and more foods... And it's the scary part is the 2% consistency. I did all the math on it. Like the 2% roughly consistency in all of the foods that are less pure than they used to be. Yeah, absolutely. So the CFI, the Canadian Food Inspectors Agency uh, releases a, a report every year. What's problematic is that nobody reads it except geeks like me. Yeah, <laughs> that's why we have that, geeks like you. Because that report came out about a month ago and, and really nobody talked about it, like zero people. And so I obviously I, I've been working with the CFI for many years, it's a great organization. And I've always advocated for uh, for a more serious approach to food fraud. In fact, 20 years ago when I started to work with the CFI, they thought that food fraud was out of scope. They shouldn't be looking at it. It, it was really a story or a thing. That's weird. Uh, it's not it's yeah, it's not their business, but I did argue to them, well. Yeah, I get that you may not feel that economically food fraud is not in scope, but what about food health? Like what about what about allergens uh, that are incorporated into food and nobody knows that? If it's not labeled, it could be a a a a life and death situation for some people so they actually start to look into food fraud i'd say about four years ago and every year they test anywhere between five to eight hundred samples so this year they tested over 800 which is great but uh when you look at results and you compare those results with last year's results you can see that there is there is a a trend upward. You there are more food fraud cases, or as they call them, uh, unsatisfactory uh, cases. Which means that when you're buying a product, it's not labeled properly. If mm-hmm. that's not labeled properly in any way, in in any shape or form, that's food fraud. Now that could be human error and someone who put the wrong sticky on the thing. I mean that you know that is possible at least. But when it comes to purity and things like honey, which was the biggest one, uh, it, th- that that's full-on deception, I would say, at this point, when someone says, this is pure, real honey, you know, and by the way, it's, it's, it's not by like yeah. 11% more not honey, right? 
The intent to deceive is difficult to measure, and uh, and if you want to measure it, uh, the intent to deceive, where uh, does it happen? Uh, we haven't seen in Canada a one single company admitting that they intended to deceive. All the time, they blame a computer glitch, they blame the next guy, they blame the supplier. They don't blame themselves, but more and more, I think there's there's less tolerance there. I think actually, I think consumers just want to see responsible companies. If you're selling something that's not well labeled, you're responsible. You can't blame your supplier, and so that's why more and more testing, more getting people to talk about food fraud is a good thing. And there are three kinds of of food fraud. One is counterfeiting. So, and there's lots of that going on right now. Two is uh, misrepresentation, selling something that's organic when it's not, something selling something that's Canadian when it's not. The biggest uh, Canadian case of food fraud is Muchi Farms. They were selling for three years Mexican tomatoes as Canadians, and they got caught. Blame the computer, uh, computer glitch for that. And <laughs> the finally, computer delivered tomatoes from another country by accident. I know. Come on. I know. And the last one is adulteration. So replacing uh, an ingredient, an an expensive ingredient with a cheaper one. And you see that a lot in oils like liquids, vinegars, and and powder, spices, and things like that, which is why the CFI targets six specific categories when it comes to the food, their food fraud report. We hear a lot about olive oil, right, being one of those ones that – can you really tell, you know, aside from the color, can you I've really tell? I've never been to Italy and try no. actual olive oil. It's it's just mind-boggling. It's usually different. And since then, I, my wife and I tried olive oil in Italy a few years ago, and it just pops in your mouth. It just – it's amazingly different. The, the olive oil we buy in Canada – uh, at the grocery store is not very good. Mm-hmm. You, you have to you and, and by the way, prices are really expensive. You you have to pay a lot more. And I'm not going to drop any brands here, but there there are some brands out there, well known brands. You can feel that the product is uh, is diluted a little bit. Mm-hmm. There was a conversation I had had years ago with uh, a person, and uh, it doesn't matter who, but she's an author and did like. Home design and stuff like that. Well, as a hobby, sort of in retirement, her and her husband bought an olive oil farm in Italy. And that's where they were spending their time. They were, you know, this is what we're done. I mean, they had all kinds of production work and they were affluent enough and that's what they wanted to do. So great. And there was such demand because they, with their olive oil, because they made it sort of artisan style, like the kind that you're speaking of, that you had to pre-buy it. It was sold out every year and you had to pre-purchase. It was an awful lot like garlic. Like if you go to a a, a local farmer and say, look, I want garlic, you tell them in the spring how much garlic you want. They will grow you that much garlic and then you take it. And if you go to try to buy garlic at the end of the summer from that farmer, like there's none left because he plants what he needs to plant and that's it. So you had to pre-buy it. That leads me to believe that if you want the good stuff, you've got to be organized and you're not buying it from the bottom shelf of the grocery store. No, exactly, exactly. So I think people are more vigilant, they're more aware. And in fact, uh, the CFIA itself has actually set up a bureau. Uh, You can actually submit a complaint. If there is a product you feel is fraudulent, you can basically just submit your, like submit an email or just call in. And if they won't investigate unless there's a complaint, Mm. basically. 
And so, but now proactively they're testing every year, and there are, and there are issues. They actually go after uh, these cases. But if you buy something and you know for sure that what you bought is not exactly properly labeled, they won't go after those cases unless you report it. Fish has been a long one because, I mean, how yep. the hell do you tell what the fish is? Um, you can't see its head for the most part, usually. Yep. Um, that, that one's not a big surprise. But, but beef is on that list. And if you think about, if you look at the counter, it's a small number for beef. But if you look at that counter and all the packages, and even if you go 1% and you look at that entire counter packages and you go, okay. Or you think about how many steaks you've had in your life. And if it's 1%, <laughs> right? Um, then you're going, okay, that means that I have eaten not beef many times, right? That's right. It's concerning. Exactly. Was but, I mean, that's probably why we say that everything tastes like chicken. Could you be. Know? <laughs> it could be chicken. <laughs> but here's the thing. I mean, if you actually look at this year's report, when it comes to meat, there's actually a silver lining here. Uh, they actually tested many samples, 99.1% mm-hmm. of, of meat products were satisfactory, which is actually good news, you know, because the biggest food fraud case in, in, in modern history was the horse meat scandal in, uh, in Europe mm-hmm. uh, about 10 years ago. Some, some plants actually decided to replace beef with horse meat and sell those products to English people. Can you imagine in England? Mm-hmm. In England, horses are pets. Mm-hmm. It's like us eating our own dogs yeah, not and good. cats. Not good. So it was a huge scandal, ethically, morally. And a lot of people associate food fraud with meat. But in Canada, based on results we saw a few weeks ago from the CFIA, I think the meat industry is doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Was there anything on the list that surprised you? Well, the honey one was a big drop, 11%. Uh, the fish the fish is actually the only category where there were more satisfactory cases compared to last year. But here's the thing, Shane. That report doesn't look at food service. And let me tell you, uh, if you really want to look at problems – you look at restaurants where they're oh, swapping yeah. out swapping out food. They tell you it's this, but, but look, it's not. Like look at right now. I mean, they're desperate for people. Okay, they they want people. They're they're desperate for margins. You got a peddler coming in, and they're selling you and they're selling you fish at a high price. What are you gonna do? Yeah, you put some sauce, a little bit of wine. Who's gonna tell? Yeah, and the uh, one thing that I had also was told from a friend of mine that used to work in in the meat service was that look, if you're going to a pub. And you're getting a five ninety nine steak sandwich. Uh, chances are that's not what you think it is because there's no way that you could afford even as a lost leader marketed. I'm to still be able- seeing all can eat sushi at fifteen bucks. That's crazy. Like how how can that be possible? I mean seriously. <laughs> and if if it's if it's cheap, it, it may be too good to be true. I would walk away unless you want you're a kamikaze or something. <laughs> I mean seriously. <laughs> Not great. Not, Not great. great. All right, uh, no. bread. Sylvain Charlevoix for the food professor. Bread has come back to the news after the. Uh, I don't oh, know what yeah. you call it, bread gate. You call it whatever you want. Um, so <laughs> the, that's a big number. What was it? Fifty million. What was the? It was a big number. Fifty million dollars. Yeah, I think a lot of media got caught up into the number, the fine. Actually, I think what's really interesting is the connection with Mempoli Foods, because it really opens up all. Be a huge can of worm. If you actually follow the bouncing ball here, you'll realize that the bread price 
fixing scandal is likely uh, going to be expanded. I mean, I think it, we're looking at other verticals like meat, for example. So Canada Bread gets sold to Grupo uh, Grupa Bimbo in 2014. That's a Mexican group. Who mm-hmm. uh, used to own Canada Bread? Maple Leaf Foods until 2014. The cartels, quote unquote, ended in 2015. And the the person in charge was uh, Michael McCain. And so uh, over the weekend, you probably saw uh, that in the Toronto Star, there was an investigation and uh, the court documents suggest that Michael McCain knew of the scheme, but didn't say anything for 20 years. Hmm. And so there's there's a lot of these things that are being unpacked. So Canada Bread basically is paying a fine for something uh, they didn't do. Mm-hmm. So the real culprit, the, the company really that is at fault is Maple Leaf Foods. And Maple Leaf Foods is a big player in the meat industry. So that's why I think right now what's happening is that a lot of people are starting to look at beyond bread and see, okay, are we? do we have a price-fixing culture problem in Canada? And, and the answer, I think, is yes, absolutely. I think – so as much as I thought that the greedflation campaign was – utterly ridiculous because when you look at statements you can't see it um as much as i believe that there there are some issues around price fixing in canada for sure well they that's probably really going to really resonate with canadians because it starts with bread price fixing but really when canadians look at so many of the conversations we've had in this country and you're the food professor so you know you can't really speak to this but to your point about culture we've Canadians have long argued that gasoline prices at the pump just are way too coincidental always in all of the places, <laughs> all of the time and how things change. And then yeah. you can go further to that into mobility in mobility. There's no way that these like companies are yeah. able to do it um, the same, exactly the same and launch the same things on the same days and have the system set up, right? Oh, by the way, here's your twenty nine ninety nine discount and everybody just happens to launch it on the same day. Like, I mean, this is just, these are just observations that I've heard from anecdotes from people. But the reality is, is that we've seen this conversation far beyond food and bread. And if it's happening automatically in a company in bread, you can't tell me that in any other business or business I've been involved in that somebody in a boardroom says, hey, by the way, uh, Steve over there is killing it in his department. Why don't you go talk to Steve and see what he's up to so you can kill it in your department too? That's what yeah. happens in boardrooms. Listen, we're close to Canada Day and I'll explain to you what Canada is all about. Okay. okay? I like That's this. capitalism in Canada. We love, we love Crown Corporations. We hate competition mm, we hate do. it with a passion we do until until prices become an issue when prices become an issue for anything in our lives then we complain and then we think there's not enough competition our, our love and hate relationship with competition is really killing our economy as far as i'm concerned and and we're seeing it in food we're seeing it in other sectors i don't really know much uh, about other sectors but certainly in food where there are 30,000 different products, I can tell you right now, 
price fixing is being normalized. I, I actually see – I talk to some executives in the food industry and they talk about the blackout period in fall. You and I spoke about this a few shows ago. Yep. The blackout period in the fall is upstream collusion and the Indian industry normalizes the practice. It's unbelievable. It sounds to me like we're lazy. I mean, we could say, I mean, I mean, your your economist background is is you know important in this too, just to acknowledge. But the um, we can say this about politics. We can say it about how Canadians deal with prices. We can say it how we deal with everything. Is that we we are so hungry for convenience? How we're different than Americans, right? We are so hungry for convenience until it becomes inconvenient. That's when we care, right? As opposed to the other way around. In America, well, the inconvenience boils down to prices. Really. Yeah, and that's if usually it, the price point. That's the fracture point, the right? The price will actually get people enraged yeah. uh, against gasoline, against grocers, against anything. And then, of course, they're expecting the government to fix the problem, but they want protection. They don't want competition. Well, yeah. I mean, how are we going to – we're going to have to figure this one out, folks. Well, we fi- we're going to have to figure it out because we want someone to fix it for us. But again, that goes back to complacency and lazy. And then you go look at American culture where they want volume. They're like, well, give me a million customers, bring me through my door, and I'll make more money in that scenario. And which is so counterintuitive to the way that Canadians do it. And um, so, and that's where, and you could even apply that to grocery margins in the stores. I was walking through Loblaws, thinking of you just yesterday uh, through the Real Canadian Superstore, looking at how. I'll take the, that as a compliment. I was thinking of you. It was good, <laughs> but I was thinking about how the uh, merchandise end of the store has really gobbled up more of yeah. the store. Because when you talked about um, um, profits in in Canadian grocery business, that they're making more money off lipstick than they are off milk, uh, for example, um, and I the, the amount of clothing and household goods and all those things are creeping into those big stores more and more there's actually less grocery in those stores yeah no absolutely if you look at at at, at empire's financial results last week empire's food sales drop last quarter in dollars despite inflation so it's not easy for grocers to actually make money selling food because right now Canadians are 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 retreating with their wallets. They're spending more on to actually maintain a roof over their heads. If you have a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage or amortized over twenty five years, you're likely spending seven thousand dollars more to keep a roof over your head compared to last year. Mm-hmm. So. How do you trade down in your life? You're not going to trade down on the roof. With, no. the, with the roof, it's more difficult. You have to move. So you trade down on food. That's exactly what's happening right now. Yeah. Goes to show how Costco and Walmart really have it figured out, right? Because they use food to bring you in. But they've always done that. Walmart didn't have food forever, and they realized very quickly, oh, wait, we can have everybody if we just have food here. Costco is a bank. Yeah. Okay, they sell you a membership, a privilege to spend. So you have to spend $60 to gain the privilege to spend. That's almost $300 million in revenues, and they haven't sold one single uh, ham or one single produce or anything. Yeah. It's a, And all the inventory you see in the store, which is a box really, it's an unsophisticated box – it's all financed by suppliers. It's just a beautiful model. And Walmart's about logistics. Mm-hmm. They do a very good job of logistics. And they always they will always have what you need. Yeah. Even if there's a storm, you need candles, anything, toilet paper, 
You know, they always have what you need. It's incredible. And I would go as far as to say that uh, they can all work really hard on their websites because they're terrible. But that's just my opinion. Because they want you in there. They want you, they in, want the you in the store. It's so yeah. good. I love it. They're going to sell you more. Yeah, it's and so they true. do a very good job. They they want you to see to be greeted by that person uh, when you exit the store. You have no idea where she looks at your grocery slip, but they look at it, they mark, and then off you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. Uh, Savannah Charlebois, the food professor. Check out his podcast. It's number one in all of the food uh, categories. Always. Uh, thanks for being here, and thanks for sharing time My with pleasure, us. Pleasure, Shane. Appreciate you, bud. Take care. This is the Shift Podcast. Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. So Greg Fish is here. And before we um, before we get into anything, Greg Fish and what's going on, I, I find it <laughs> awesome that this is how we punctuate the world of weird things here on the shift. And that is, Greg, you are only allowed to answer with one word and please accurate answer. What state are you in right now? Florida. Hit it, John. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. <laughs> ah, yes, Florida. It's one of our favorite places in all of the United of the States, and that's because that's where the stupidest things happen. And so that's where Greg Fish is today, not an indictment on you or your family, sort of. Um, welcome back to the shift, and uh, this is it. This is going to be... Your last one for a little while. The Greg Fish is uh, taking a taking a break. Yep, need a little bit of uh, need a little bit of time to to reset some things. Uh, got a couple interesting uh, things in motion, and just got to see him through. And so Greg has been on this show for more than three years. It's been an incredibly long time, and he's been um, here every week, in and out. Worldofweirdthings.com is the website where all of these old stories are are on, and it really is just the growth and. Um, yeah, this, I guess the, the forward migration of, of what is the work that you get up to. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. And this is actually what this article is about. It's kind of, uh, trying to summarize where we are and where we could be going. And I think it's also part, uh, partly me thinking through out loud, some of the things that I really want to focus on basically in the immediate future. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you, know, you listen to you nicely trying to segue and avoid the feelings. I'm still in the feelings realm. Um, so <laughs> I want everyone to know um, that like, you're not disappearing from the shift. I mean, you will be back to talk about things for the time being. This current segment is going to be on hold and, um, and we're going to, uh, we're going to have new things here. In fact, our cyber safety summer is going to be in this spot starting next week. So um, you will be back. You will still be on the shift. You'll still be available on shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group and all those things. So it's not like you're moving away, away. You're just moving to a different place. Yeah, if you think you're going to get rid of me, this is yeah. this is way too much fun. You're, you're not going to get rid of me forever. Nice. No matter how hard we try, we send her to Florida. So that's step one. We'll see if that one works. Okay. Um we're boring. We're trapped. Where are we going on the world of weird things, Fishy? So we are going to talk a little about dystopias because this is a word that gets used a lot, 
But there's always the question of what do we mean by dystopia? Because let's also remember that one person's utopia is another person's dystopia and vice versa. And I wanted to kind of nail down more of a, what's a working definition of a dystopia. And then one of the terms that you may have been seeing a lot around the, around the internet, which is a, that we live in a boring dystopia. So, so what exactly does that mean? What is a dystopia? How did we get here? And how do we get out of it? Because it's kind of time to make some very profound changes in terms of how we run things. And it's time to start really thinking and talking about what those changes look like. So should we go ahead and just start it from the top? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a great idea. I just, I'm very curious with all of the, you know, utopia and dystopia and ironically how you can maybe think that you're in one and, end up in another, right? Like you're, I'm all in for this. And then you get there and everything changes. So I just wanted to add this to the layer. So on your market set, go. Yeah, that is actually a plot line of many, many, many sci-fi stories, including, I mean, actually, especially A Moon is a Harsh Mistress, where uh, you set out to make a utopia, but you end up with something very, very different. So when we talk about what is a dystopia, we're talking about something that is, that we can quantify and say, hey, a lot of people really don't like this, just objectively. When we poll a wide swath of people, they say, hey, this thing that we're doing right now, we absolutely hate this. This is awful. This is miserable. We do not like this. Um, and the way that we can judge it is we can look at uh, many declining metrics of people basically saying, like, we're really dissatisfied with the world today. There's a lot of people who are dissatisfied with uh, what democracy is doing. There's a lot of people who feel like they can't get out of authoritarianism and they are kind of trapped in authoritarian countries. There are a lot of people who are kind of losing their hope that anything's going to be done about climate change and global warming. Uh, there are only one in 10 of us who actually say, hey, my job is awesome and I feel really engaged and I'm really glad that my job exists. I love getting up in the morning and, and, and doing the thing that I do. Um, so when you look at all of that, all of those are, are significant problems. And we can look at some other statistics that say, hey, uh, quality of life in places like the United States are falling because problems are just basically just going unsolved and no one seems to no one in charge really seems to care. We also have um, social media spreading absolutely horrible news and disinformation because, you know, when we talk about disinformation, there's a, tr a $3 trillion economy to essentially keep us, uh, keep us from, from learning the truth, so to speak. And, and what I mean by that, I'm not talking about, you know, we, when we talk about disinformation, we always talk about, oh, the people who have their agendas, who are lying to us, who are trying to, to, pitch us fake news, but that's not really what it is. The vast majority of that ecosystem is based around the idea of ads, the original sin of the internet, because they need to keep showing us ads. And the only way to show us ads is to show us more stuff that we like. Mm -hmm. They do the same thing that they do. Like, for example, it's impossible to to find everything that you want on the internet. There's way too many websites. There's several billion websites out there right now. So if you want more cute puppy videos, Awesome. Okay, we'll find you more cute puppy videos. But when we start dealing with things like that have to do with news and current events and politics, the modus operandi of social media, of a lot of ag news aggregators, of search engines, is not to necessarily say, hey, we're going to pitch this great big organized agenda. It's, hey, whatever you want to be true is true. Let's just pretend right. it is. Like, what, whatever you want, yeah, 
Sure. Have at it. World's flat? Sure. Um, what, the world's not flat? Yeah. What, whatever you want, it, whatever you want, we'll, we're going to go ahead and pretend that it's true. <laughs> I love how you just moved on. That yeah. was good. Well, the world can't be flat because of gravity. Hmm. I'm, gonna just, yeah. I'm just going to leave it at that. You don't have to explain it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in with you. We're good. I don't know who might be listening. There may be some, there may be some flat earther who's going, what do you mean? The, what do you mean the world isn't flat? Yeah, gravity. Nice. You, the disk would just collapse into a ball anyway. Uh, sidebar. Anyway, the well, internet's that's... giving us the information. That was, you're all of all, all yep. right now. Um, the, uh, so the internet's giving us all the information that we want, whether it's true or not, because then it feels, uh, it feels, uh, yeah, good to be right. It feels or good. Welcome. We look at, we, it feels good. We look at the ads, we line people's pockets. And then what happens is when we say, okay, well, how about real problems? You know, let's fill the potholes. Let's make sure people have adequate health care. Let's make sure that people are actually engaged with their job, that people are satisfied with life, that there's more to life than just consumerism for the sake of consumerism. And we feel like we have some sort of a purpose. Um, and we're basically told, well, no, that's stupid. That's utopian. You're a child to think that there's more to life than essentially hustling for more and more stuff. And by the way, you need to buy more and more stuff because if you don't buy more and more stuff, then the economy is going to go into a recession and we're going to take away that job that you hate, but then also you're going to starve to death because of that. Uh, and this is mostly because the way that the world is kind of being ran right now, it's almost like it's almost like Dickensian England with Wi-Fi and cell phones. It's like, you know, you have to toil forever in the day for the betterment of your, you know, masters, for the lack of a better word. And mm -hmm. people know this and people have written many volumes about this. Everyone from um, and, and I mean this everyone from like the hippies from the age of Aquarius in the 60s to uh, people like the International Monetary Fund today who are basically saying like, hey, this is actually like a crisis. We're not putting people with the right jobs. We're trying to do the jobs of the past and pretending they're going to be the future. AI is coming in and changing in everything. People feel like there's no place for them. People, and But people also feel like they don't have any outlet for their creative urges. They don't feel, they don't feel like they have a say in things. So they're kind of just, we get up in the morning we do our silly little chores. We do the jobs that most of us don't really like. We buy stuff that we don't necessarily want, but we're told we need. And eventually we're at a place to put it all. We throw a bunch of old, old stuff away. We buy a bunch of new stuff. And we just repeat that cycle until, I don't know, we just have the little X's on our eyes and keel over. Mm. And people freaking hate that by every single uh, by every single metric and now comes an ai and we're basically being told hey by the way your job is going to be obsolete okay well what do i do who knows who cares doesn't matter um mm. so this is this this is what we mean by the boring dystopia we are bored trapped animals in the machine of our own design we mm. have the robots making art and poetry and mm. we are doing spreadsheets and buying stuff and surfing a web that is continuously made for bots, by bots, and only intended for us to buy something. So, yeah, we're miserable. It's a boring it's dystopia. Well. Yeah, it's, it's so, going great for humanity. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for anybody who's like left-brained, 
um, you know, that's a that's utopia because spreadsheets. Hello. No, no, no. I am very left brain and I absolutely hate all of this with a passion. If I had if, well, if I had the power, I would erase all of the stuff that I'm talking about and hit a hard reset. You have uh, you 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 create a very good point that we are we have so lost our way that the computers are writing songs and making pictures and making poetry and we are left doing the mundane tasks and isn't that quite um sad right um and i also think that your other point where you said that the you know our our wash rinse repeat of our lives of you know buy stuff use stuff throw away stuff buy more stuff i mean we are here to grow economy and and to generate 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 in all of it now how do we break that though fish i could feel like we should do this though while we talk about this hey okay. a little age of aquarius going on in it um well see that's the, see that's the thing you get the oh well these hippies are talking about how to abandon capitalism but actually i think our our biggest way out of it is to just change what we define as success yeah, and, and I, I would also, uh, because it's a stand I take, we also need to create the distinction between greed and capitalism. Such a good song, man. Um, that, you know, there is a Very distinction fitting. between greed and capitalism, right? Um, yeah. And the, we can't collapse greed and capitalism as being one and the same. Quite often, capitalism is a disguise for greed, and it's a really nice notion that, oh, I'm just a capitalist. Look at me. Give me all the things. Um, you can capitalize on things and take advantage of things. It has pushed our society so far forward in so many ways, and greed is definitely a problem in this. And what we're seeing is that for everybody who's not willing to compete on that level in the wash, rinse, repeat loop, those are the people that get trapped in that dystopia. And I, I think you're right. Nobody's happy. So the question is, of course, how do we get out of it and get back to sitting around, listen to the fifth dimension, man? So the easiest way to do that is to kind of have this. So the, the, the idea, believe it or not, uh, some of the ideas that, that summarize this are often mocked as fully automated luxury communism, which is... Again, it's kind of a joke because the idea really comes from uh, the, the very first people who kind of foresaw where we were going to be at the beginning of the 20th century and saying that, yes, automation is going to eventually eliminate a lot of jobs, but we should salute that as a good thing because this idea that we're going to show up to a factory like machines ourselves. So actually, funny enough, uh, the, the word robot actually comes from a novel about creatures, human-like creatures who are basically being put into factories to do nothing but toil forever and a day. So let the robots toil. We're not supposed to be like robots. We're supposed to be set free to do other things, to invent, to figure out new ways of doing things, to do more science and more research and more exploration and more ideation. So the idea is instead of thinking, oh, well, we're going to become workers for a company and we're going to 
handle their spreadsheets and TPS reports, and we're going to uh, write accounting software. It's more like, no, let the robots handle it. Let the AIs handle it. Let them. We already have all of these solutions. They're all solved problems. We need more researchers and we need more scientists to try and figure out how do we live on Mars? How do we live on the moon? How do we mine asteroids? How do we clean up the earth? How do we come up with the new materials to replace plastic? We need a lot of scientists to tackle a lot of problems. We need a lot of researchers to build those experiments. It's essentially transitioning into that. What is, we, we talk a lot about the knowledge economy, but a lot of times that knowledge economy is really knowledge and how to build the gizmos better. We don't need this many gizmos is one thing. There's only so much space. There's only so many resources. There's only so much money to buy stuff on one planet. And on top of that, if we have a trillion choices in everything, it's actually scientifically proven that we get analysis paralysis. We get very, we get FOMO, we get really stressed out. So the idea is, okay, we figured out what works. We know how to build stuff on demand. We know how to build enough stuff to basically take care of everybody in the world. How do we actually do that? How do we achieve that? And then how do we measure success in a different way? Not by how many units we sold and what the share price is, but by how many people have we fed? How many people have we clothed? What is the average uh, standard of living on earth? How many things have we cleaned up? Because all of these things are arbitrary. This is the, this is the thing that 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 a lot of people don't seem to the, the greedy capitalists, not just the capitalists who want to who want to own stuff and do cool stuff with it, but the the greedy bastards who have us by the throat don't want us to to, to think about is that all of these systems are arbitrary. We don't have to live this way. We can simply redefine success to something that is more sustainable, something that is better for us overall, something that is healthier, something that is going to produce new inventions and innovations and new ideas, things that will, over the long term, grow the economy by leaps and bounds. But we're just going to say, hey, you know, if you didn't sell, if you didn't sell X amount more selfie sticks, that's fine. We should not be worrying about the economy crashing because we did not meet the quota of selfie sticks. Yeah. We're good. Well, uh, boy, that's a bigger conversation um, that we cannot save for another time about the stock market and on-demand buying. But I will say this is that you are proposing that humans get healthier. And uh, I'm always I'm always in for that. Greg Fish here, worldofweirdthings.com. Greg, uh, thank you for, I know this is your computer science brain. You're going to hate this part. Um, thank you for everything that you've done, all of the wild stories you've shared with us, your willingness to be here always on time, consistently, consistently with wild ideas, fun conversation, curiosity, and you've given me your listening and willing to have been willing to take on some things that I've thrown your way as well. I cannot thank you enough for your participation here on the shift. I cannot thank you enough for your friendship here that we've uh, been able to create in this and I do look forward to you coming back when um, we have topics as a guest from time to time, not every single week. And maybe one day we can talk you into uh, bringing some of your new projects back to the radio. And that's from me and everybody, Kelsey, Ryan, Chano, Larry, everybody. Um, thank you for all of your work. It's been a pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. 
Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? Share your thoughts. These stories hopefully will make you ponder, and we really want to know your thoughts on this first one. Are you okay with cursive? Ooh, hot topic. We should have a hot topic button. That's what we need. Um, cursive. I learned cursive. I remember, you know, practicing drawing each letter. My favorite one to draw was F. You know, F. probably grade. Yeah, F was my favorite. Really? Yeah. Uh, probably grade. That would have been grade f- three or four. Probably grade three. I remember doing that. And then, you know, it kind of is a skill that you wouldn't really have to use past that point. I remember using it basically to translate the letters my grandma wrote me. And as I've gotten older and I've used cursive less and less, I find it harder to read my grandma's letters, which makes me sad because they're so nice and so beautiful. So I think while cursive practically doesn't really have much, you know, use in society anymore, I think we should probably still learn it. It's got to be good for the brain and it makes birthday cards 10 times more sentimental. I uh, could, I disagree. I think it has all kinds of places in society. So that, that's awesome. But I do agree with all the grammar stuff. So that's confusing. But, um, there is something beautiful about cursive. I think it's incredibly important to be able to hand write a note. Printing is one thing. It's blocky. It works. We have computers for that. But cursive allows a little bit of expression and artistry in what you're doing calligraphy i belong to a i probably never shared this before i i go to a calligraphy class online it's a free one um and it's i i got involved in it because when i bought a mock block pen you they send you newsletters and they have these calligraphy experts and so you of course everybody's fancy with the mont blanc pen and how to hold it and turn the tip when you want with a fountain pen and all the fancy but that being said, they teach you secrets on various cursive and, and calligraphy techniques, which is awesome and really nerdy as I say it out loud, <laughs> but it's cool. It so cool. I think yeah. a handwritten note, just like Ryan said, um, is cool. I find it interesting that you said that the less you use it, the harder it is to read. I hadn't thought of that perspective. Yep. I, I can't read it as well anymore. It's like a language if you don't speak it, if you learn it, but you don't speak it for 10 years. You're probably likely to forget a word or two. Duh. Um, so it is. Um, it is. Cursive is important. Uh, John, uh, did you ever do cursive? You're a little bit younger. Yes, I did. Uh, okay. Like Ryan, I learned how to do it in grade three and grade four, and I find it useful, Shane, because I. Uh, from that, I learned how to sign my name. So when I have to sign receipts, yeah. at, when after I buy some yeah. groceries, that's a great point. I, I, I use it. So mm-hmm. it's application. It works. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to printing. Um, okay, cool. So Curfus, Curfus, Curfus. Come on, brain, <laughs> don't fail me. Cursive is going the way of the dinosaur, or at least it was. Maybe not for long though. 2006, it was really relegated to an optional piece of learning in Ontario elementary schools. Cursive writing is set to return as a mandatory part of the curriculum starting this September. Education Minister Stephen Lecce said uh, it's about more than just teaching students how to sign their own name. Research has been very clear that cursive writing is a critical life skill in helping young people to express more substantively 
to think more critically, and ultimately to express more authentically. Apparently, vocabulary study with big words that end in L-Y, also important. He said this in an interview. And there's evidence that suggests cursive is good for the brains. Scientists are now discovering that learning cursive is an important tool for cognitive development because it teaches the brain functional specialization. That's what allows your brain to integrate things like sensation, movement, and thinking in the most efficient way possible. Brain imaging studies show that writing in cursive, unlike typing, activates multiple areas of the brain at once and is especially good for fine motor coordination. It also helps develop good thinking skills. Research finds that writing letters in a meaningful context instead of just copying or tracing them produces even more robust activity in both hemispheres of the brain. I still think the best part of cursive is that it slows us down and makes us present to what we're actually doing. I mean, I can type out an email and bang out an email on the keyboard and not even really remember what I said because you just sort of mechanically do it. Mm-hmm. When you're cursive, running cursive, though, you're paying attention, you're trying to form it, you're trying to have it clear, you're very present, and it slows our brains down. I think that that's the most important part. It's a good, it's a nice part of it. And from the education side, I think it's importantly, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of my favorite humans, uh, was talking about uh, calculus and, you know, arguing people learn calculus in high school and then they leave high school and go, I never used calculus. I wasted so much of my life being so stressed over these math problems that I never used. And then he says in this interview, he goes, yes, but the important part is you learned how to do it. Your brain, which is still developing, was able to make these connections to solve these problems. And those skills go beyond math and beyond science. And I would I would say that cursive from like the education standpoint falls into that similar category, because even if you're unlikely to use it very often or on special occasions, the actual act of the learning it when you're a kid probably helps, you know, just your brain get good with the big brain stuff you know (laughs) my brain get good um uh, clearly uh it works because we are just poster children of of good brain things big brains why we're on at nighttime um that article we heard why it was from seeker by the way the curriculum reintroduces cursive writing as an expectation starting in grade three the elementary teachers federation of ontario has said the changes are vast and is calling for a minimum two-year implementation period Many broader than just cursive. Many of the curriculum additions can be traced back to a resort uh, report last year from the Ontario Human Rights Commission, which said the province's publication system was failing students with reading disabilities and others by not using evidence-based approaches. I think it's a good thing. Handwriting your notes. Okay. Um, uh, I try to write in cursive whenever I can. I believe uh, it's a use for a use it or lose it thing. Uh, thanks, Don. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah. uh, conspiracy theories. <laughs> Sorry. Signature yeah, angel. Um, yeah, there is. Yeah. Huh. Um, uh, the, the, can, do you want to hear the conspiracy theory? Or should we just move on? Is it, is it about Do you want to hear how dumb some of these things are? Is it about cursive? Is it a conspiracy yeah. theory about cursive writing? Yeah. yeah I've heard this before. Really? Okay, I'm curious. If you've heard this before, I want to hear it. They eliminated they eliminated cursive, so we as the normal people could no longer read the Declaration of Independence and other old documents. <laughs> so we don't know what our rights are. Now that's you know, different for us, but 
there's yeah. translations available, uh, copies of it everywhere. Uh, they, yeah, the people have also typed it out. Just saying. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and Nicholas Cage stole every it. time someone goes to read it, you don't have to un- unfurl the scroll. <laughs> yes, the paper. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye. Anyway, let's just move on. That was fun. What do you think? Cursive? Thumbs up, thumbs down. 877-399-9898. Go ahead. Don't continue. Oh, just final opinion. Just Sorry, I didn't really. Yeah. Uh, just if, if, I, if I had a kid and they were going into elementary school, and I, I would say that, yeah, cursive would be nice to have on that curriculum. Yeah. Mm, right? Yeah. That's because you want more gifts when they sign yes. their name on the yes. Lego at Christmas time. Dad. Yes. And birthday. Right. You're going to be a great dad. Are you okay with... I feel like we should do it this way. Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. Wheel of Fortune is a pretty awesome show. Uh, It's, uh, you know, it's, it's for me, daytime TV ranking. You know, when you stay home from school sick there, you know, there's three shows you watch. It goes, oh, there's the audience. Price is right. Number one. And then right below it is Maury. Cause I, love bad tv especially when i was like a kid i love it it's terrible and then right underneath is wheel of fortune which is still high wheel of fortune's great you put maury above wheel of fortune i realize how trashy that is i i realize like i've got a trash brain there's a little bit like that that love of maury goes right beside my love of monster trucks you know what i mean like it's just kind of like yeah i'm just gonna i love monster trucks they're big and loud um, okay. Anyway, uh, Wheel of Fortune has been on TV forever. Uh, that TV show is a pillar of daytime TV watching. And for its entire existence, Pat Sajak has been the host from the very beginning. His resume is not long. He's decided that he's going to step away and retire from the show after he's hosted it for 40 years. I think it turns into 41 by the time he's done. Cause I think he does the plus uh, one, right? No. I, so I think it's this been is 40. Last, this is the 41st season. We'll have the new host. Oh, I see how that works. Yep. Uh, yep. Wheel of Fortune is going nowhere, and they have found the guy to fill in Pat Sajak's massive shoes. Ryan Seacrest has yet another job. He is spinning <laughs> into a new role uh, that he hadn't done before. No, no, no. The 48-year-old has been tapped to host the game show Wheel of Fortune. He shared the news on Twitter, adding he can't wait to work alongside, quote, the great Vanna White. Seacrest is set to take over from longtime host Pat Sajak in 2024. Sajak was hosting the Wheel of Fortune for more than four decades. His departure from the show was announced just two weeks ago. Back in April, Seacrest stepped away from his position on Live with Kelly on Ryan. Live with Kelly and Ryan, (laughs) which he had co-hosted since 2017 to make space for this uh, lucky new job. Okay, that's CBS News. Yep, Brian Seacrest will take over the duties for the 24-25 season. Pat Sajak has been the Wheel of Fortune host since 1981. The following year, his iconic co-host Vanna White joined production to operate the game show board, reveal letters as they were uh, guessed by contestants, and then there was controversy as she had to stop turning the letters and she just touched them. Technology. That Seeing was a as controversy? This is... Sorry, no, sorry, that was a controversy? No, I just made that, that up. I was exaggerating for emphasis. Oh. Okay. Uh, seeing as this is one of the last times we will talk about Pat Sajak on the show, we need to play the best Wheel of Fortune moment of all the time. 
Well, you know, if you solve, there's a $7,000 jackpot. Go ahead. Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. Whoa! <laughs> I'm impressed. Thank you. Wow. 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 That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> I have just one thing to say to you. tried so hard to do it but it was it's so bad it was it was not good oh, no. uh there was a lot of good moments on that show when it was oh. blatantly obvious what the answer was or even mm -hmm. what it wasn't and people mm -hmm. would speaking of trash brain that you have um mm -hmm. there are people who their brains went to really trashy places trying to solve that show maybe um, i should make a little montage of just the best individual the best of the worst the best of the worst on Wheel of Fortune. That might be a fun bit. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, okay, Ryan Seacrest, thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, I mean, like it's, I don't know. For me, Ryan Seacrest will always be the American Idol host, you know? Yeah, that's but... just like, and I know he hasn't done that in like 10 years, but like after Ryan Seacrest left that, I didn't, I don't really know what he's been doing. I know he's like does like a daytime talk show and now this. No, he quit that. Um, so the, the thing with Ryan, though, is as another Ryan, uh, you know, he makes a terrible joke. I, I, I'm not sure if he's got the uh, the tempo. You know, uh, Pat isn't this huge personality. He just like keeps the boat afloat with a nice, easy flow. He's got a couple of zingers here and there. He's a nice guy to host the show. And I think that's what makes Wheel of Fortune good. And I hope that Ryan doesn't take in like the opposite direction. Uh, so I'd be curious. I'm, I have no idea how it's going to go, but I, I think that for big brand value, Ryan Seacrest is probably the best choice. I just, how many retreads is this guy going to do? I mean, that's yeah. What and he, how many? It's kind of his thing. Yeah. Well, he's he did the the Regis and Kelly show, Kelly yeah. and Ryan show for five years or whatever it was, and they did American Idol for five years, seven years before that, and it just it I don't know like I. He, Pat Sajak did it for 40 years is the, this implication that Ryan Seacrest is going to do it for, for the next 40 years. I mean, Drew Carey taking over after Bob Barker, Drew Carey had never done a game show before. And he said that he wanted the job because he absolutely loved the prices, right? He has not stepped away from the prices, right? As far as I know, since he's been he hosting has, it, he's been he all has, in on it. He, uh, whose line is it anyway? Is sim is kind of has some I, game show elements that, to it. Sure. Yeah, yeah sure. But yeah, has you're right. To, he hasn't left. to the improv he's, nature. He is locked in on All that in. show probably till he retires. Right. All and in. so, but yeah. we're going to still see Ryan Seacrest do New Year's and do these things and do those things and all that stuff. And I, I don't know. I think it takes away from, uh, why not take a total nobody who loves the Wheel of Fortune and, and give someone else a shot? That's what Pat Sajak started, right? That's how these yeah. guys started. And I think that would be really great. And I have nothing against Ryan Seacrest. He's incredibly talented. There's no doubt about it. He's turned, been a part of a lot of very successful shows. So I just, I don't know, but I, I feel like it's, it's kind of sad in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Maybe he'll be great. I mean, his dentist will be proud because that is one heck of a perfect smile. Mm-hmm. It is. So, He's it is. the same. He's like Tom Cruise. Ooh, they could call it the smile of fortune. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.